0: Thanks, Jude. It's always nice to be back at Borderlands. It's uh, yeah, at least 13 years, maybe. <laughs> you used to be over on Octavia Street. That's right. He's down in the, the, the dank, finished basement. Too. Yeah. Yeah, Alan, Alan's mother used to bring cookies. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was nice. Uh huh. Oh, that's good. Okay, yeah, the today I'm going to be reading there's a series of four novels I wrote software, wetware freeware and realware and uh, the first one I wrote in the software I wrote I guess I wrote it in 1979 and it was just at the beginning of the cyberpunk movement which didn't actually exist yet I mean it was just an idea that was in the air and uh, it's the word software was an unfamiliar word at that time. It was, I'd seen it in the Scientific American, but it was, wasn't a word that people used very much. But I, I had the idea that uh, your personality is in some sense like the software that's in your brain, and your brain is a little bit like the, the, the hardware. And that idea is sort of a commonplace place now, but, in 1979, that wasn't an obvious idea. It took me about six months to figure it out. And then uh, what happens in software is there's uh, this race of autonomous robots who live on the moon, and they've, uh, they're do- undergoing a process of evolution. They keep building, they have factories, they're building new robots. There's uh, a certain amount of mutations, uh, a sexual reproduction. They'll sometimes combine their programs and uh, survival of the fittest. I mean, who gets to put their software onto a new body? So they're competing. So they've evolved pretty well and they're uh, now they've come down to the earth and they're collecting people's brain software. Uh, you know, they just think it's cool to have, you know, or they might use it for something. And One of the themes in software, there's a, a character called Cobb Anderson and they want to get his brain software so they can give him a nice new robot body. And he also has a younger friend called Stay High, who's a, kind of a stoner, uh, low-end kind of guy. And Stay High falls into the hands of a group of people, one of whom is one of these software-collecting robots. And this is a scene in software that's sort of a famous scene. It's called the brain-eating scene. Uh, Software Chapter 5. The prick of a needle woke Stay High. He opened his eyes. His body seemed to have disappeared. He was just a head resting on a round red table. People looking at him. Greasers. And the chick he'd been with last. Are you awake, she said with brittle sweetness. She had a black eye. Stay High didn't answer right away. He had gone home with that woman, yeah. She had a cottage down the beach. And then they'd gotten drunk together on synthetic bourbon whiskey. He'd gotten drunk anyway and must have blacked out. Last thing he remembered was breaking something, her hollow caster, crunching the silicon chips underfoot and shouting, shouting what? You'll feel better in a minute, the woman added, in that same falsely bright tone. He heard her poodle whimpering from across the room. He had a memory of throwing it, arcing it along a flat, fuzzy, parabolic path." One of the men at the table shifted in his chair. He wore mirror shades and had short hair. He had his shirt off. It seemed like another hot day. The man's foot scuffed Stehi's shin. So Stehi had a body, after all. It was just that his body was tied up under the table, and his head was sticking out through a hole in the table top. The table was split and had hinges on one side and a hook and eye on the other. "'Stocks and bonds,' Stehi said finally. There's a nasty looking implement lying on the table. It plugged into the wall. He attempted to smile. What's the story? You mad about the, the holocaster? I'll give you mine. He hoped the dog wasn't hurt. At least it was well enough to be whimpering. No one but the chick wanted to meet his eyes. It was like they were ashamed of what they were going to do to him. The stuff they'd shot him up with was taking hold. As his brain speeded up, the scene around him seemed to slow down. The man with no shirt stood up with dream-like slowness and walked across the room. He had words tattooed on his back. It was too hard to read. The man had gained so much weight since getting tattooed that the words were all pulled down on both sides. "'What do you want?' Stay-I said again. "'What are you going to do to me?' Counting the chick, there were five of them, three men and two women. The other woman had stringy red hair dyed green. The woman he'd picked up was the only one who looked at all middle class.' Date bait. Y'all want some killa weed? Drawled one of the men. He had a pimp mustache and a pockmarked face. He wore a chromed tire chain around his neck with his name in big letters, Birdu. Also hanging from the chain was a little mesh pouch full of hand-rolled cigarettes. Not me, stay. I said, I'm high on life. No one laughed. The big man with no shirt came back across the room. He held five cheap steel spoons. We really going to do it, Phil, the girl with green hair asked him. We really going to do it? Berdu passed a crystal joint to his neighbor, a bald man with half his teeth missing, exactly half the teeth gone so that one side of his face was flaccid and caved in while the other was still fresh and beefy. He took a long hit and picked up the machine that was lying on the table. Take the lid off half and half, the chick with the black eye urged. Open the bastard up we really going to do it, the green-haired girl exclaimed and giggled shrilly. I ain't never ate no live brain before. It's a stuzzy high, Rainbow, Phil told her. With his fat and his short hair, he looked stupid, but his way of speaking was precise and confident. He seemed to be the leader. This ought to be a good brain, too. Full of chemicals, I imagine. Half and half seemed to be having some trouble starting the little cutting machine up. It was a variable heat blade. They're going to cut off the top of Stahai's skull and eat his brain with those cheap steel spoons. He would be able to watch them at first. Someone started screaming. Someone tried to stand up, but he was tied too tightly. The variable blade was on now, set at one centimeter, the thickness of the skull. Stahai threw his head back and forth wildly as half and half leaned towards him. There was no way to read the ruined face's expression. Hold still, damn you, the chick with the black eye shouted. It's no good if we have to knock you out. Stay High didn't really hear her. His mind had temporarily snapped. He just kept screaming and thrashing his head around. The sound of his shrill voice was like a lattice around him. He tried to weave the lattice thicker. The little pimp with the tire chain went and got a towel from the bathroom. He wedged it around Stay High's neck and under his chin to keep the head steady. Stay High screamed louder, higher. Stuff his mouth, the green-haired girl cried. He's yelling and all. No, Phil said, the noise is like part of the trip. Wave with it, baby. The Chinese used to do this to monkeys. It's so wiggly when you spoon out the speech centers and the guy's tongue stops moving, just all that. He stopped and the flesh of his face moved in a smile. Half and half leaned forward again. There was a slight smell of singed flesh as the heat blade dug in over Stay High's right eyebrow. Attracted by the food smell, the little poodle came stiffly trotting across the room. It tried to hop over the heat blade's electric cord, but didn't quite make it. The plug popped out of the wall. Half and half uttered a muffled, lisping exclamation. "'He says, get the dog out of here,' Burdoux interpreted. "'He don't think it's sanitary with no dog in here.'" Sullenly, the chick with the black eye got up to get the dog. The sudden pain over his eyebrow had brought Stehai back to rationality. Somewhere in there, he had stopped screaming. If there were any neighbors, they would have heard him by now. He thought hard. The heat blade would cauterize the wound as it went. That meant he wouldn't be bleeding when they took the top of his skull off. So what? So the fuck what? Another wave of wild panic swept over him. He strained upward so hard that the table shifted half a meter. The edge of the hole in the table began cutting into the side of his neck. He couldn't breathe. He saw spots and the room darkened. He's choking, Phil cried. He jumped to his feet and pushed the table back across the uneven floor. The table screeched and vibrated. Stay High threw himself upward again before half and half could get the heat blade restarted. Anything for time, no matter how pointless. But the vibrating of the table had knocked open the little hook and eye latch. The two halves of the table yawned open and Stay High fell over onto the floor. His feet were tied together and his hands were tied behind his back. He had time to notice that the people at the table were wearing brightly colored sneakers with alphabets around the edges. The little kidders. He'd always thought the newscasters had made the gang up. Someone was hammering at the door harder and harder. Five pairs of kid sneakers scampered out of the room. Stay High heard a window open and then the door splintered. More feet. <laughs> Shiny blazed. Black lace up shoes, cop shoes. So that's the end of that scene. And uh, in the next novel, then they go up to the moon and they have this whole thing with the robots up there. They're called boppers. And uh, in the next one, which is called Wetwear. The boppers get into uh, adjusting our DNA, so programming things into our DNA. But uh, I think just for kicks, for my next reading, I will kick ahead, skip ahead a little bit to the third one, freeware. And by freeware, uh, the robots have become, they're no longer made of kind of silicon and boxes and so on. They're made of this stuff called flicker cladding, which is uh, somebody before the talk was asking about cellular automata. And in a way, flicker cladding are like a type of computer graphics called cellular automata. They're this plastic. It's always bothered me that computers are sort of brittle and, you know, hard and boxy. It'd be nice if they were soft things. And so flicker cladding is this sort of like silly putty, but it's full of, uh, it's full of, circuits. And the circuits are not in any way ma- metal or electric. They are actually circuits that are based on fungus. There's this mold that grows inside this plastic. So the plastic is uh, it's able to stretch and shrink. It can glow. And the sort of brain in it is run by this sort of fungus that lives inside it. And so these creatures, they're called moldies because they're, you know, they're, they've got mold inside their bodies. And they, they smell sort of bad. And they also have nuggets of fungus, of sort of truffle-like nuggets inside them that some people like to take to get high. But um, And then uh, the people, of course there's humans who want to have sex with the Moldies, and of course all those people are men. <laughs> and uh, the... Uh, and those people are called balds because they like that the sort of cheesy reek of the moldies. Now, it's a little dangerous to have sex with a moldy because there's this sort of back-and-forth game going on. The humans have developed these sort of what they call leech dims. They're sort of control patches, and they like to slap that onto a moldy, and then you can control the moldy remotely. It becomes your slave. But the moldies, on the other hand, they like to stick a tendril up, through your nose and then punch through the roof of your palate and put a little uh, a little a little kind of controller thing inside your head and then they, they can control you. So it's sort of a war going on. So anyway, chapter one, Monique from Freeware. Monique glided over to Randy Carl Tucker's door and knocked. He opened it and Monique mamboed in Mambo on in. The room smelled like Tucker's breath. Tucker's ovie was sitting on the desk projecting a hollow of a pornographic soap opera. An Uvi, it's basically it's like an iPod except it's soft and you can wear it on your neck. Yar there," said Monique, synthesizing the sounds on a fluttering membrane near the back of her mouth cavity. "I saw you um gesturing to me before. Is there something I can like do for you?" Monique's sort of a, a maid in this motel, and sometimes the customers will come on to her. Randy Carl Tucker. Tucker's thin mouth lengthened a bit in a sly, lustful smile. He's from Kentucky. I knowed you'd come back. That's why I've been sitting here awaiting. Just close the door to begin with, you little stinker, and pull the drapes before we start a carrying on. He was clean shaven and his eyes were flat and pale. Two women on the porno soap were arguing over a boyfriend. I'm not sure I can help you, sir, said knowing Monique, sliding the door closed and pulling the curtain across it. Terry Persesipi, she's the manager here, she was just telling me this morning that it's not proper for me to have any kind of intimacy with the guests. The Clearlight Terrace Court Motel is a place for wholesome family fun. Those were Terry's exact words. Monique set her arms akimbo, flexed the erectile tissues of her breast mounds, and waggled the hip-like swelling below her waist. So, um, like, what is it that you want from me, country boy? She patted out her lips and giggled. I, moving as stagely as one of the actors on the soap, Tucker paused to take a slurp from a cardboard cup of coffee printed with the logo of the Daffo Deli down on the beach. He looked solemnly up from his cup, only to lose his composure and break into a cackle at Monique's beckoning gyrations. For now Monique was milling her arms and flinging them out like a pom-pom cheerleader. You're a pippy hunk of cheese, ain't you, said Tucker. To hell with what your boss says, Monique. You show me a good time and I'll pay you plenty. Monique undulated forward across the motel room's carpeted floor, standing right up against the man, opening her skin fissures to release an even headier mixture of her bouquet. Can you authorize the charge to your account now, Randy? How? I'm the bookkeeper as well as the maid, Mr. Tucker. Will you authorize the charge? Monique reached out and undid one of the buttons of his long-sleeved white plastic shirt. His gray pants and black plastic belt were as cheap-looking as the shirt, His hair was short and unclean. His thin skin was spotty from acne and a faded tan, and Monique could see his faintly pulsing blue veins beneath the skin's surface. His nose was a bit crooked, and he had a large Adam's apple. Um, all right, the man mumbled reluctantly, but put it down as, as, I'll just average it into your, like, room rate, said Monique. It won't show, but you have to come out and say just what it is that you want me to do. Monique smiled hugely and released a cloud of spores. So that you can't frame me for prostitution? In case you're a, like, heritagist? So now please tell me what you want, Randy. I want you to blow me, damn it. And what's wrong with heritagists anyway? That's what you are? I ain't saying that I hold their beliefs, but I knowed a few of them back in Shively. The heritagists have done me some good from time to time. What would they think about your wanting to have sex with a moldy? Tucker sighed. They'd understand it perfectly. Why the hell do you think they talk about it so much? I'm way past that loser guilt shit, Monique. All the things I've done, it's hard to believe I'm only 21. (laughs) Tucker stared intensely at Monique, as if trying to read her mind. Finally, he reached some internal decision and looked away. Let's just say I'm a peculiar man and I got my needs. Can we get started now? I'd love to, said Monique dryly. She finished unbuttoning Randy's shirt, and now she undid his pants. She paused, looking at him. He was weedy and thin, but with a certain amount of muscle. She was going to have to be sure to get a tight chokehold on him when she went up his nose and punched into his cranium. Now he lay back on his bed and Monique pressed against him, letting her tissues flow and reshape to mold themselves to as fully, so as to fully envelop Randy's private parts. Sexually, it meant no more to her than pushing a wheelbarrow would mean to a human. Monique set up some caressing rhythms, trying to rock the weight up to speed. While Tucker wheezed and twitched in mounting excitement, Monique set her right forefinger to growing like a vine. She twined it up along Tucker's torso and wrapped once around his neck. Feeling leery of starting to choke Tucker right away, Monique went ahead and slid the tip of her four-foot-long finger into Tucker's nose, at the same time setting some chaotic ripples onto his genitals. But now, instead of lying back in blind ecstasy, Tucker suddenly sat up and started clawing at his face and neck. "'What the hell you think you're doing in my nose, bitch? "'Thought you'd give me a thinking cap, didn't you?' (laughs) Weirdly enough, he sounded not so much angry as excited and he made a rattling noise that sounded almost like a cackle. Monique tightened herself around his neck as much as possible and punched her tendril with all her might against the spot high up at the back of Tucker's nose, but it wouldn't give. She punched and punched again, but it was like Tucker's skull was patched with titanoplast or something. Monique couldn't get in. And now Tucker had wormed his right hand between Monique's noose and his throat, and she couldn't choke him anymore. With his left hand, he yanked Monique's tendril out of his nose. He got to his feet and started kicking at Monique's body. Monique squeezed his testicles so hard that he screamed and fell sideways, crashing onto the desk and plopping the oven and its holograms to the floor. This was turning into a full-scale disaster. If Monique ran off now, Tucker would tell people about Monique's attack on him and she'd be hunted down and exterminated. She had to finish him off. Tucker was on his back now and Monique was on his nude body like a savage vampire slug. There was a fight scene playing on the Hollow 2 which seemed to be drowning out Tucker's cries so far. Or maybe all the people in the nearby rooms were out on the beach where they belonged instead of lurking inside waiting to have sex with a moldy like this scungy, heritage bastard. Tucker had hold of his travel bag now and was fumbling to unlatch it. A gun? A gun couldn't hurt a moldy. With his left arm out of the way... Monique was free to shove a fat tendril down his throat. She'd been on the port point of calling her husband's lottle for help, but now she was sure she was going to win. There was a good weak spot in the skull right behind the roof of the Flesher's mouth, and it wasn't armored like the spot in his nose by Flesher. But just as Monique began to push, something leapt out of Tucker's suitcase and slapped up against her, and everything changed." Instead of being on top of the struggling Randy Carl Tucker, Monique was curled up on the floor beside him. His voice was inside her, whispering to her. She could make no move without his permission. Even her thoughts were not fully her own. Yeah, you just, you just lay still for now, Monique, Randy said, getting to his feet. Nice little tussle you put up there. A lively little two-legged imipolex creature was strutting back and forth on the floor like a chicken. It was the thing that had jumped at Monique. Back in the bag, Willa Jean, Randy told it. You done good. You pasted that super leech on her just in time. He coughed and went to the bathroom to drink some water. The chicken stood there staring at Monique. It had a fuzzy purple patch on its back. It moved tentatively closer and gave Monique's face a gentle peck, then a harder one, gouging out and absorbing a little strip of Monique's immipilex. Back in the bag, Willa Jean, repeated Randy, coming out of the bathroom. Now. The creature hopped into Randy's bag and he closed it back up. Randy dug in his pocket and examined a couple of small purple patches of imiplex he found there. Then he picked up the room's ovvy and called someone, using a voice connection alone. Arby? Randy here, old son. Got me one. How soon can y'all get the boat out there? Copacetic. I'm starting now. He turned off the oven. We're going for a swim, Randy told Monique, this time without speaking out loud. We'll walk outside and you'll rickshaw me down the cliff at Steber Lane. we going to step lively so your boss don't stop us. So Randy's going to abduct Monique and take her back to the moon. Uh, it gets kind of complicated. It said... It, it said... That scene was set in Santa Cruz. I like Santa Cruz a lot. Uh, That's an actual motel where i stayed. It wasn't that exciting when we stayed there. But, uh, and then, uh, yeah, a lot of freeware is set in San Francisco, too. Now, uh, the last one was called Realware. And uh, what happens in freeware, by the way, there's also some aliens that show up. And they begin... One of the themes that I was doing in the wear books, I was uh, kind of trying to increasingly generalize what it means to have a mind. And so in software, the idea was you could maybe extract the software from your body so you could be a pattern of information. And then in wetware, it was the idea of uh, you don't actually need to have a machine to run the information. You can be running the information on organisms, which in a way we already knew. And in freeware, what happens, we know there's very powerful cosmic rays that are always zapping into the atmosphere. You know, they come from very far away in space. And people often say, well, if aliens are coming to visit us, how would they travel? And it seems to me that probably the, the easiest way to travel across the galaxy would be to encrypt yourself, basically zip yourself up in the in the software sense, can, can compress yourself into this very tiny information pattern that you could basically encrypt in the oscillations of a, a heavy particle. And then you send that particle across. And then, essentially, the particle has to hit something in which it can be unzipped. Like, there's a lot of zipped files floating around the web, but you know, unless they land on a computer that happens to have the, be, able, be able to decompress that, they don't go anywhere. It turns out the bodies of these moldies turn out to be good things for decompressing this alien software. And so, what happens with freeware is some of the moldies actually become aliens. It's it's freeware because you got it. It came in a cosmic ray. Maybe you didn't want to have it, but you you get it and it was free. Now, in realware, the idea is the whole idea of matter becomes sort of hypothetical because. The aliens have this device called an Allah that lets people... You can basically think about something and then you feed it into the Allah and the Allah will kind of create it. It's an old science fiction dream of direct matter manipulation, creating objects out of thin air. And so there's a little scene in Real wear that's uh, kind of a... It's a nice visual scene. So there's a, a show going on on stage. It's on a, a boat, one of the abandoned boats down near and down near Third Street in San Francisco. Babs, giving Randy's leg a big pinch, said, Bite. Uh-oh. Shimmer and Ptah are going on stage. Babs had been around Moldies for most of her life. She'd been five when her father sponsored the Moldy citizenship Moldy Citizenship Act of twenty thirty eight. And there had been a steady stream of grateful, moldy visitors ever since. And of course, Babs's mother herself was part moldy. That is, Wendy Mooney's personality lived in a moldy, happy cloak that had a symbiotic relationship with Wendy's human flesh. In the natural course of things, Babs had seen moldies having sex a number of times. Moldies weren't modest. It excited her even less than seeing two dogs fucking, which was not at all. But Shimmer and Ptah certainly did give a spirited performance. They bounced up onto the stage, began embracing each other, and just for the goof of it, Shimmer pushed her body right through Ptah's, his bronze flesh forming itself back together on the other side of the marble Shimmer. Ptah did the same to Shimmer, and then they corkscrewed themselves together so tightly that they looked like a candy cane or a barber pole. To top off the foreplay, Shimmer divided herself into an archipelago of separate globs, and Ptah juggled her. While continuing to juggle, Ptah began pinching off more and more globs of himself until all that was left of him was a pair of hands down on the platform of the stage, incredibly keeping some two-score white and bronze balds aloft. And then the bronze hands became balds as well. Before the balds could all tumble out of the air, Two of the white balls stuck to the ground and formed themselves into hands and took over the juggling. At each round, another white ball stuck to the hands, and the hands grew into arms, into a torso, and finally into all of Shimmer, juggling bronze globs of Ptah. And then Shimmer stepped aside, and Ptah's globs somehow sprang together in midair, reassembling the grinning bronze Superman all at once. Even Babs had to applaud for this. But now the inevitable had to happen. Ramses' music took on an urgent, throbbing tone, and Shimmer and Ptah swooned to the ground. They softened their flesh to a near-liquid state and pasted their bodies together, opening up their pores enough to exchange wet flows of imipolex they carried along cells of their algae and their fungal mold. The mold nerve magic took over, and they shuddered in a mutual orgasm. A musty, cheesy reek came drifting down from the stage. Babs peered over at Randy his eyes were wide and his mouth was open emboldened by her two beers Babs couldn't resist letting her hand steal over to gauge the state of Randy's excitement oh yes Babs moaned Randy please touch it well why not just for a minute anyway she slipped her hand under the waistband of Randy's baggy pants hmm a girl could definitely do something with this So that's the end of that scene. So uh, maybe I don't know. Often people enjoy the questions as much as the reading. So maybe that's enough reading for right now. So uh, if you don't have more any questions, I'll read more. But let's let's have a few questions. Yeah. So were you tempted to, or did you tamper with the original manuscripts did we reissued them now? But, a little bit. Uh, there's always, well, I thought maybe I wouldn't change them at all, but after all, I'm a writer, and when I see one of my manuscripts, I just can't help but tweaking it. But I tried to only tweak it in ways where, oh, where the word order was bad, or where it was, sometimes when you read something and you haven't read it for a while, you can see that the the flow is a little confusing. So, I, mainly it was just things of that nature. I didn't, I didn't do anything that particular to uh, boldlerize it or, or make it less offensive, because that would have been just too big a job. <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of all the changes in technology. So 1979, this was oh, different. a, a little, yeah, I did it really. Because this was said in the future, it was actually said in 2020, which is coming up on us, but uh, I didn't have to do too much with the technology. Well, there's one technological aspect that is sort of funny, but it's sort of like, you don't want to change it because it's kind of cute. I I mentioned in software, there's there's this guy, Cobb Anderson, and the robots are gonna, they they eat his brain and they extract his software, and then they're gonna run it in a computer and that way, you know, he's going to live again. And they build an android body for him to run. But, again, when I wrote this, it was 1979. And at that point, I, I just couldn't wrap my mind around the idea that a computer as powerful as a human brain would, would fit in a skull, you know, because at this point computers lived in basements, you know, of, of the of, of, maybe one building on campus. So the computer that's running Cobb's mind is in a, it's in an ice cream truck. There's also this brief notion that if computers are super cooled they would work better. There are these things called Josephson junctions. And at one point, these were viewed as a, a big future of computers. And, but those had to be in liquid helium. So, you know, he's got his brain is in a, a computer, but the computer weighs a ton. So, and it has to be kept at near absolute zero. And so it follows him around in this ice cream truck that has this evil grinning statue of Mr. Frosty on the top. And uh, so that was that was sort of a, a kind of an old-fashioned thing, but then it, I, I left it in anyway, because it, it made, made for some nice scenes. And uh, of course, like so many other science fiction writers, I didn't anticipate cell phones, but Actually, I had this thing pretty early in the book that I always talk about, the Ovi, U-V-V-Y. And it's it's this little thing, like a slug, and you wear it on your neck, and it can have a direct interface with your, your nervous system, and it can project holograms. It's sort of, again, a little bit like, a, like an iPhone, but it's stuck to your neck. Probably coming. I would think so, yeah. Well, one of the... The, the big thing still that always, I still don't see why they haven't quite solved this, is when you get these these digital devices, when you see people like doing on the keyboards, you know, these tiny black-gray keyboards, that looks very very unpleasant to use. And as a writer, I certainly wouldn't want to write a novel that way. And so you do like have a full-size keyboard, and then you'll get a netbook, and they'll say, well, the keyboard, it's .9 as big as a real keyboard, but if I try to type on, something it's .9, it just doesn't work for me, you know. Maybe I could adapt, but there's this thing, I mean, why can't the machines adapt to me? You know, why, why am I adapting to the machine? So it, it seems really there should be something that, oh, it could be like bicycle gloves where, you know, they just cover this and not your fingers, and you could just type in the air or on the counter. They've made some things like that. There was this thing of projecting an image of a keyboard, and the pad keyboard, I think, is full size. Uh, I haven't really tried to use it very much, though. But uh, anyway, the interface is still a problem. Yeah. Um, Why are all the accents or many of the characters uh, southern? Well, the parts I read you, yeah, there were two people. the The little kidders, they were sort of Florida rednecks. And that was, well, maybe I should tell you that I grew up in Kentucky, okay? I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, so I have a fondness for Kentucky accents. And Randy Carl Tucker, you might say he's my alter ego, uh, though I'm not really partial to having sex with robots, but, uh, but I, I like him. He's, uh, he grew up in Louisville, kind of a bad part of Louisville. There's this less affluent part of Louisville called Shively, and that's where he came from. And uh, he had sort of an interesting childhood. But uh, I won't go into the details here. But uh, so, yeah, so that's, I kind of enjoy writing that. And the Florida people, we actually did, my wife and I stayed in a, an inexpensive motel in Cocoa Beach. This is when I sort of got the idea for software. This was a very long time ago. This would have been around 1977. And uh, we used to live in upstate New York, and I was a professor there at a small college in the State University of New York system. And we would hoard our money and then drive down to uh, Florida or to North Carolina for a spring vacation or summer vacation. And we made it to Cocoa Beach, and we were staying at these motels. And there were these sort of sinister... Uh, Florida, kind of biker types with tattoos, and it was funny, and that's uh, and that sort of gave me the inspiration for software. I had the idea for writing it while we were there. Are there any uh, predictions that you're particularly proud of that have come true? Or? Um, that's. Sometimes I can think of them, let's see, uh, yeah, that you want to be able to say, well, I predicted that, you know. uh, Like, well, Heinlein used to be proud that he predicted the remote handling hands. They're called Waldos uh, that that they use in nuclear reactors. And uh, in a way, I predicted, I don't know, just the idea, the whole idea of turning the human mind into software was it was sort of not a not a familiar idea at this time so that was something i sort of predicted and the whole uh, the whole cyberpunk thing was in a way something i was anticipating here this was would certainly be called one of the very first cyberpunk books i mean neuromancer and software would, would probably be the first two that would come to mind and uh the thing of wetware, something I've been into recently, uh, in, I've always liked this idea of computation getting out of these, these beige buzzing plastic boxes that we have, or metal boxes. And one of the ideas that I liked is the wetware computation, where we, we take a biological system and they talk about nanotechnology, but in a way, biology, that's what biology is doing, it's doing nanotechnology. And if we master nanotechnology, it's probably not going to be tiny gears made out of diamonds. I mean, that's kind of—it's like a category mistake. You know, it's if we're going to if we're going to do things at the molecular scale, this could be very much like the way biology does it with the enzymes and the, the DNA and the uh, RNA and the uh, so it seems like that's that's probably the way that I see it happening. And take it a step further. Something I didn't get into really in this series, but I talked about in two later novels called Post-Singular and Hylozoic. I like the idea of, if you look at the physics, any chaotic process, like flowing water or air currents or flame, these all, in some sense, their, their behavior is rich enough that they can support uh, universal computation. They can actually behave in any, any possible way. And at this, it's at this stage, it's, it's sort of we just don't know how to do the input-output to a bowl of water, you know. But that really could be your computer. And looking at a deeper level, there's quantum computation, which there was a period when, since if you're a science fiction writer, you sort of got your wrap figured out, and then the scientists come up with something new that you weren't using, and there's a tendency to turn fuddy-duddy and say, well, that's, that's bullshit. I'm not going to use that. <laughs> a science fiction writer is never really in a position to accuse people of being bullshit. <laughs> that's, that's our, our, our profession. You know. So, uh, and then I started liking the idea of quantum computation. For me, the turning point was somebody said, uh, whenever you have light bouncing off an object that's, you're having a quantum computation take place there. I mean, it's sort of very ordinary. It's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, in a bath of liquid helium, you know, or on a stable mercury table or anything. Any object, all the atoms in there are sort of vibrating and, and exchanging things, and there's a, a sense in which there's a computation taking place. And if we could find some way to, to tap into that, we really have all the computation that we want. is all around us. So just as, and... People often have trouble accepting this because we have a lot invested in the idea of our chip-based computers. But, I mean, we don't use watches made out of gears anymore. And it's only been 60 years, you know, since we, we, the switch happened. So why do you think in 100 years we'd be using computers made out of silicon chips? I mean, to me, that it seems very, very unlikely that things change, you know, and... We we always think well now we're done you know, and everything's here. But uh, so that's that's something that's always interested me, and that was kind of a theme that was driving me throughout software. Of again, kind of blurring the line between different kinds of reality and computation, and then what is computation, and playing with it, and uh, so that was something I had fun doing. but I won't get into it because it's very long. Do you see connections between the creative processes of writing and painting? Writing and painting? Well, that's... Yeah, in recent years, I started painting in about... Oh, I think about 11 years ago. I was writing a novel about the painter Peter Bruegel, the elder. Some people pronounce his name Bruegel. In Holland, they say Brockel, But I say Bruegel. Anyway, the uh, Peter Bruegel. Yeah, and in, in fact, yeah. Jude is just holding the novel up. That was my one historical novel, <laughs> and I didn't put science fiction in there. I didn't want to drag Bruegel in the gutter. <laughs> so, uh, 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 but His life was very interesting anyway. And while I was doing that, my wife and I uh, went to a, a night class in painting, and I really got to like painting. And so now I paint a lot. I might paint. I mean, sometimes I won't do it for a few months, but... Recently, Right now I'm between novels, and so I'm painting more than usual. I'll, I'll do a painting every, maybe a painting every month. And uh, it's, it is a very different process from writing because, uh, well, there's similarities and there's differences. Uh, <laughs> there's a, an emergent aspect to painting, maybe more so than writing, where you're just bl- globbing the stuff on and seeing what you like, and you know you can just get a shape and play with it. And I like the analog quality, the way the colors merge together. Uh, Writing is, in some ways, it's sort of digital in that you're typing letters. But there is a sort of blurring quality. You can just, you know, put these scenes out there and and see what happens. Uh, But it's a less... Also, doing a painting is a less... I mean, if you write a novel, it's like you're building a pyramid or or a skyscraper. It's a very long process. And my friend Terry Bisson, he, he kind of prefers writing stories to writing novels. And he says, well, writing a story is like you work in a body shop. You get something in there and you hammer on it and then in a week you're done and it's all shiny and you send it out. And being a novelist is like being a farmer. You have to go out in this field day after day, month after month, you know, and uh, be cultivating it there. And and painting is more, it's more closer to the short story because you, you get it done. And uh, But I like, in any case, when I'm doing something creative, one thing I like is it sort of turns off my inner monologue because, like many people, I think I, I spend a lot of time worrying about the past and the future and you know trying to make plans and then um when I'm doing something creative I sort of get out of that you know I I forget myself I become part of the work that I'm doing and painting is very very pleasant that way so uh yeah I do actually have I put I made a book out of it with uh, I think 65 of my 64 of my paintings in it and uh that's a book I produced myself and actually printed via Lulu. And we, we, I brought a few of those in here today. It's called Better Worlds, and I have some prints also. So I got a, a high-quality Canon printer with ten colors of ink, and I printed it on this this nice uh, museum-quality paper. So, if you want uh, want to get one of those, we have a few of the prints here too. So. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's enough for today. So thanks for coming out. And Jude's got some books and prints if you're interested. And uh, thanks again. Thank you.